Hi, I'm Wendy Francis, nutrition therapist, emotional eating expert, and entrepreneur. I've helped countless people overcome their obsession with food and weight. Isn't it time you overcame what you had become and ignite who you were meant to be? Your time to become an overcomer starts now. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Overcoming Your Emotional Eating, and thank you so much for joining me. If this podcast episode caught your attention, I know why. Trauma in our food is rampant, and we don't even know where or how to look for it. In fact, most of us understand a little bit about what trauma is and some about what it does. But the more you recognize where trauma comes in, and how much it impacts our food, our eating, and our relationship with our food and our body, the more you'll recognize the freedom that you can have when you move through that trauma to really overcome what you had become. This episode is, in fact, second part of trauma in your food. Take a listen and take a look at www. WendyFrancis.com. Over the course of the next two months, I'm going to be designing and having some new ways to help you all continue to overcome in your journey. All right. So I am always, always excited to talk about whatever I'm going to talk about on these calls. Um, but the reality is, is certain ones hit my heart more than others. Certain ones I know I could do hours and hours. Today's topic I could do days on, realistically. And so for me to condense what I'm going to teach you today or talk about, communicate, guide you through, it is really a really condensed version. But I wanted to open everybody's eyes and ears in a different way, maybe. Maybe a way that you've never looked at before, maybe something that you haven't seen, something you haven't recognized. And the reality is, is, you know, last week for you all, I did trauma in your food part one. And this week I am doing trauma in your food part two. I think I could realistically make this, you know, eight to 10, 12 part series. But by then everybody might be sick of hearing about trauma. The interesting thing is, though, is we just don't recognize how often it's around us and how often it's in our food, our body, our body weight, and our body image. It's so overlooked, and it's such a passion of mine to really understand from a deep level how trauma affects our food, weight, body, and body image. Laurel Hamilton said, there are wounds that never show on the body that are deeper and more hurtful than anything that bleeds. That, in fact, is absolutely true. And when we talk about trauma, that's the case, right? We talk about what whatever trauma is, how it happened to you or Maybe we'll look about it, look at it a little bit different. However, it happened for you, because I really do believe that everything happens for us and happens for a reason to teach us something. However, even I recognize in the moment or moments, if we don't heal it after, that it doesn't always feel that way. 
and that I get. But I want you to open your eyes in a different way and see trauma in your food just through a different lens, even if you can only do it for the 15 or 20 minutes that I'm talking about it. But if you could start to see the world or your food and your weight, your body image, and maybe other people's through this lens, it opens your eyes to a different construct. There's certain areas of food and eating that I absolutely know impact trauma in the food, in, in a person's food, in a person's ability to eat certain foods, in a person's ability to eat certain quantities of food, in a person's cravings. One of those areas can come from what I call food insecurity. Now, food insecurity happens when we're growing up for some people. If you grew up in poverty, if you grew up with food being taken away from you, or maybe you grew up being force-fed, maybe your family had inadvertent boundaries with food, meaning you can eat everything you wanted of certain foods and maybe nothing of other foods. Maybe sometimes there was an abundance and sometimes there was nothing. Let me preface today's conversation realistically in understanding that this is not a blame-shame game. I don't get into those. I don't love them. I don't think they do anybody any good at all. But what I know is that we have to learn about this stuff. So in understanding this, remember that this is to empower you to understand and become more aware about where you came from. When a child grows up in poverty, we recognize that there may be an inadequate amount of food or formula, maybe not enough food in the house. Maybe a child is force-fed because there's only so much right now and it's going to go bad, which can happen, right? Or maybe there's inadvertent boundaries, right? Sometimes too much of certain foods, maybe sometimes too much of foods that aren't good for our body, and maybe sometimes too little of other foods. This, in fact, can create insecure attachment to food. Now, who would have thought? I'm going to combine attachment theory and food and feeding relationship through our talk today. And uh, honestly, for anybody that understands attachment, you may think I'm crazy, but the truth is, I know it to be true because food is one of our first formed attachments. But if you have poverty or force feeding or inadvertent boundaries in your house, it creates an insecure attachment to food. And this individual can become more of a food hoarder because there's a fear of there not being enough, can be an overeater or potentially a restrictor. In force feeding, in a child that has been force fed, meaning either the caregiver, this can happen a lot when caregivers are not in tune with the child. So they may continue to feed them when the child is full and giving signals of being full and the child can't stop the caregiver. So they override these messages realistically and they go with the force feeding. So what can happen as a child gets older is that they can overeat or they potentially will close down and become a restrictor. For a child that's got sensory trauma, okay, so 
many children have sensory issues with food. In fact, it's becoming more and more common, whether or not we're just recognizing it now or putting a label on it, or maybe it's increasing. The truth is there are many kids that have sensory integration issues with food. So whether they don't like certain colors of food, certain textures of food, maybe they don't like certain foods in general. It can start out as this little sensory thing. And the truth is parents, and trying to be a good parent to be attentive, can realistically blow this up and it can become a control battle. Here's how, right? Little Johnny or Susie doesn't like green beans, but the parents really want the little Johnny or Susie to eat green beans. Now, there's a sensory issue because Johnny doesn't like the way the green beans feel in his mouth or her mouth. And the reality is, is then, then parents start to say, oh, he or she doesn't like vegetables. And then it can go from that to he or she is picky. And then it can go to, we need you to eat your vegetables, and maybe you can't get up until you eat your vegetables. And the cycle can go on and on and on. Sensory trauma can then occur, because when a child has to override their sensory issues with food, and like I said, many, many children have these. It doesn't always relate back to a trauma. Sometimes it can. And, and that trauma can be mild, for example. Here's an example, uh, and we've talked about this a number of times. One of my children, when they were young, threw up uh, SpaghettiOs, the red sauce, and could not eat red sauce. In fact, still to this day, has a really hard time with red sauce, still to this day. Still has a piece of that, even though we wouldn't consider that a traumatic event, the body sensation for this child in throwing up the red sauce really triggers that child and can't eat the red sauce. Now, if I wanted to go further with that, right, if you've got, if I got scared that that child would never eat tomatoes and then never eat vegetables and then had to, wanted to try to make him eat that, the reality is, right, you could see that goes on and on and that can wage a war in the house and it can create sensory trauma, which then sets up a child for the next issue. Invalidating feelings for a child. This is huge. When we invalidate feelings for a child, now, I'm specifically focusing on food, but we can talk about how much we invalidate feelings in general for children. The reality is if we invalidate feelings for our child in any way, whether it be around food, I don't want to eat that, I'm full, I don't want to eat anymore, and then you say, you're not full, you have to finish your vegetables. Or you're not full, you have to do da-da-da-da-da. That's invalidation of feelings around food. Invalidation of feelings for a child is a child screaming, crying, and the parent says, you're fine. You're totally fine. There's nothing wrong. I don't know why you're crying. There's nothing wrong. Invalidation of feelings. What happens is enormous. I always want to say ginormous, but it's not really a professional thing to say. <laughs> but what happens then is your needs, when they're not met by someone else, you stop voicing them. You start repressing them. And you begin to feel alone. You begin to feel, some people can feel depressed, some people can feel unfulfilled. You can then lack boundaries because you'll allow anybody into your space to not feel lonely. You might make friends with people who don't really understand or value you because you don't really understand or value 
yourself. One day then, you might be on your way home from work, stop in a cake shop or get a cookie, and you buy that piece of cake or cookie, take it home, you eat it, and you feel better because there's an increase in serotonin, there's an increase for some in cortisol, right? There's an increase in dopamine. It's like a little pick-me-up, and you don't feel as lonely. So not only do you wind up having significant shifts in who you let into your life and how they treat you, but there's, an also, there's also a significance in how we eat then and what we actually look for in our food that's way more than nutrition. And when our feelings are invalidated, we also learn to invalidate our body and how it feels. So maybe it's not really hungry, but I just want to eat that food, those cookies or those cakes. And so it doesn't really matter that I'm not hungry. I can just invalidate my body. I can override my own needs and wants and feelings to go with what someone else says or does or to go with what my head says and not what my body says. You see, when others invalidate us and we learn to invalidate ourselves, it creates a major pattern in our lives that needs to be shifted because when, we inv- when we're invalidated and then we invalidate ourselves, it is really hard to find a sense of self-worth, period. And without self-worth, we really are floating in the middle of an ocean alone, out in the seas. So what happens? The way trauma happens in childhood, I didn't even go into other larger traumas, um, but the reality is when we look at invalidating feelings and things of that nature, we could take that, I could go on and on and on with that, but for, for essence of time, I just wanted to open your eyes up to, to understand really, truly what happens when we look at these specific examples of trauma that people might not really consider. And the truth is what we know is when these things happen, we then store, learn to store certain feelings in our body. Now, we always store feelings in our body, but we also store the trauma in our feelings, and we repress those feelings because we don't let them ride through our body, and we don't let them ride through our mind emotionally, and we don't know how to do that. So what do we do? We repress the feeling, and we hold it somewhere in our body. Now, based on multiple issues, kind of how we get to where we store those things or repress those feelings in certain parts of our body. Could be genetics, uh, could be holding patterns or body patterns, could be parental patterns, right? How a parent holds and stores their stress or anger, we may wind up modeling the same way. We also can model food and eating patterns. We can model how we invalidate our body or don't invalidate our body based on parental patterns. We can hold our feelings in different parts of our body. And then depending on the feeling that we're holding and repressing or impressing, I should say, impressing into our body, then the reality is is that's where we're going to feel things in our body. Now, if you invalidate your body, you're not going to get this. That's why it's so important to recognize if you invalidate your body, the first thing you need to do to heal is to start to get in touch with how you feel in your body. 
That's it, just to get in touch with it. Now, for some people, that's super scary, and I get it. We'll talk about that in just a second. But the reality is, for those of you that can just become aware, just become aware before you eat out of craving or eat out of want, how is your body feeling? Become aware. If you hold that tension in your jaw, you feel that need to chew, well, that's holding a feeling in your body, right? That's, that's important to recognize. If you feel in your neck, you might hold in your neck. Some people, uh, I've had clients point to their esophagus. Well, that would be, um, and that might lead to some constriction, realistically. If you hold a feeling in your hands or your wrist, you're much more likely to do hand-to-mouth motions. That's things like popcorn or chips, right, in front of the TV, hand-to-mouth. If you feel it in your chest, constriction or overeating can help you try to get rid of that tension in your chest or in your stomach. And if you hold something, some feelings in your shoulders or upper body, you might need some nurturance, some softer, some warmer foods might symbolize more of a hug, realistically, when you think about that. Now, the reality is everybody's body patterns are so different, and that's the cool part of this work. Nothing is ever the same. No client I have ever worked with is the same. I can get some patterns based on the length of time I've been doing this, but the truth is everybody's so different, and I'm constantly learning because the reality is we are all unique in our individuality and we're all unique in our stories. So the reality is, is recognizing what it is for you so that you can get a sense of where you hold that trauma and those feelings in your body. And then how does it affect your eating? Because it does, that you can't not. Anything that happens in our body will impact our food. It will impact how we feel about our body. It will impact how, what we weigh and, and how we view our weight. As a total aside, but not really an aside, and I only say it's an aside because this could be a full-day seminar. When the body is violated, whether it be a rape or a severe beating, bullying, when the, when the body is violated, it can lead to multiple links between trauma, safety, and our body not being safe. This absolutely transfers to our food or our weight. And if food becomes unsafe, it can lead to more restriction. If our body being seen at all, seen by other people becomes un unsafe, it may become more about being overweight. Because you see, a lot of times in our culture, being overweight feels unseen. And trying to be hidden in the overweight based on our, what our society patterns are. These things require healing in some different dimensions. It can be healed if you work through and with that. The first step always is recognition and awareness, right? So you don't always have to go to that level until you're ready, but recognizing and becoming aware of how your body feels, what your relationship with food is like, where your traumas came from, how you store it in your body, where you repress those emotions, and then what foods do you try to eat in response to them? So, for example, holding in your jaw, having the need to chew, well, you're absolutely going to go for crunchy foods. That's so that, that that jaw can help relax. Some people are chronic gum chewers, but the truth is gum chewing 
doesn't relieve it always for everybody. In fact, I found gum chewing to trigger it more. So someone will chew and chew and chew and chew and chew, and then they'll just transition to food, right? So the reality is, is recognizing this, becoming more aware of this will help you heal. The goal in all facets of eating nutritionally, so to speak, when it comes to trauma is to reduce the inflammation that trauma can cause because we know this, right? We talked about this last time, the higher the incidence of trauma in childhood, the higher the incidence of chronic illness from what we saw in that ACE study that I mentioned. The more trauma, the more inflammation. Eating an anti-inflammatory diet and working through these facets of your body, one, can be realistically fascinating, but more so. They can help the healing physiologically, and then doing the work emotionally can create the psychological healing. And isn't that what we're all going for? To be whole and healed is the name of the game. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend, rate, review, and subscribe. You never know who you'll help become the next overcomer.